So I'd like to bring to mind, um, remind or suggest the three bases, three kinds of intelligence that we are endowed with. Uh, bodily intelligence, which is the ability to balance, walk, chew, do the many things that the bodies can do without us having to, you know, say think anything about it. <laughs> you know, you can't say which muscle has to move to get you walking. You say, oh, get up and walk. And the body knows how to facilitate that. And every we can all do that. We had to learn it. And we learned it through the body, you know. You know, and it's through getting up and stumbling and falling over and finding balance. We learnt it. There's no book that could have told us how to do it. Mm. Bodies are intelligent. Yeah. And bodies can find balance. Bodies know how to relax. Minds don't. <laughs> Takes a bit of doing. Yeah. Bodies pretty much, if you go into areas of your body and just soften that there's nothing you need to carry in your shoulder now most bodies know to relax except of course when they get so stupefied that 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 facility is dumbed down and we'll get back to that emotional intelligence we know whether things are pleasant or agreeable or disagreeable. Mm. We can know that in an obvious degree. We're moved, we're touched. Mm. We're touched by things that are not, certain, not even material, just uh, purely mental, or like beauty, um, politeness, honesty, touch us and give us rise to agreeable feeling, friendship. Uh, ease, space, mm. can be agreeable or disagreeable, but we have that, and it, that can refine to a considerable degree, just as the body can, and just as the body intelligence also gets jammed or locked, the emotional intelligence also gets jammed and locked, so, mm, and confused. Verbal intelligence, the ability to discern and think things, form concepts, define something, translate an experience into words and juggle them and interpret and, you know, expect. This could happen, we do that and that and that, we can deduce, we can analyse, we can reason. So this, this also, this intelligence is something that we are gifted with. And you, you just uh, doesn't take long to figure out that in our uh, literate world, social world, the verbal intelligence thinking is the priority. <coughs> Planning, thinking, and uh, that that has the priority. Uh, to the extent to which energy goes into that, other forms of intelligence are lessened, minimalized, perhaps barely even use the word intelligence for a body. Mm. And that's both uh, uh, socio-cultural, even systematic, you know, from Plato, which is very much abstract. Mm. The written word, the written word rather than the spoken dialogue. Mm. Flat. Void of emotion. Void of body, out of body, into eternity, written down, out of the body, out of speaking to somebody, out of being heard and listened to, with no cadence, with no personal tonality to it, with no humour, pause, voice tone, softness abruptness, none of that, all stripped away to something written truth which is made into a law and there we are governed by that flat unfeeling disembodied 
unresponsive, inhuman word. Worshipping it, venerating it as the highest, because it is stripped, void of subjectivity. We say this is not subjective truth, this is objective truth. There's no such thing as objective truth. (laughs) I mean, it's not true unless you experience it, is it? Is it? Where does it live? Where does objective truth live in a world where there's no no subjectivity? Hmm? It's tight. It's locked into eternity. That must be good. <laughs> that's the way. That's the way it's seen. It must be good because it's lasting, permanent, carved in stone. There's nobody there. It's in a library. There's nobody there. Mm. There's no possibility to talk to it. Mm. Enjoy it. Have fun with it. Listen to it. Mm. It doesn't care. That's the best. That's what we like. That's best. That's what we venerate most highest. <laughs> that which is completely stripped of all human interaction. Mm. That's been the trajectory. Descartes, if you're familiar with Descartes, I think, therefore I am, his famous saying. He reduced intelligence down to thought. There's only two kinds of intelligent. One was the thought and the other was God. Animals, no, nothing. Bodies, nothing. Just dumb meat, dumb matter. All forms of life, dumb matter. (laughs) <laughs> uh, the only thing that's intelligent is a thought and God and after a while God disappeared yeah. and so we may not have studied philosophy but these trends abstract thought mechanism, science and the sense in which object, such a thing is objective truth well who knows objective truth if somebody knows it that's subjective isn't it Mm. and notice objective truth can change dependent upon the political flavor of the month as we know it changes by the hour these days (laughs) depending on subjective (laughs) feeling and needs and inclinations we're defined objectively as objects nations genders coloration of skin we're defined as objects one of those is your box Hmm? it's tidy that way isn't it very nice and tidy and you can just start to resonate with the kind of brutality that that opens the door to. And we've witnessed it in history and will continue to witness it. Now, you know, just to backtrack, Buddha's teaching all spoken. You've got it written down in words, which is, yeah, that's nice, it's great. In many respects, thank goodness. You know, it's not to say these things are not useful, valid, in their right place, seen as they actually are, purely as indicators to resonate with and transfer back into subjective reality lived breathed felt humanized 
not held up as dogmas, not seen as, you know, something for the subject of scholastic debate, but rich with felt meaning offered by a a wise, compassionate and sensitive being out of sympathy for the welfare of others. This is the way one should understand it. As I've referred to several times already, and just to bring it back again into your uh, consciousness, into your awareness, Buddha talking about the danger of conceiving, manya. There's the unawakened worldling conceives of this, conceives of that, conceives themselves to be this, conceives themselves to be out of this, conceives themselves to be in earth, of earth, out of earth, earth is mine. Uh, conceives themselves to be a body, uh, in a body, out of a body, body is mine. I am a body, I want to get out, you know, this is the way that it goes. And it says, this one in training, let them not conceive, let them directly know. Body is like this, direct knowing, pajana, thoroughly knowing, directly knowing. And the adept has directly seen and known, and they've shaken off the trace, the tether of fascination, nandi, fascination with conceiving. It doesn't interest them anymore. So they've completed the transition the trans- to full intelligence. It doesn't mean just because they're not conceiving they're stupid. The awakened one is anything but stupid. His own description, on one occasion he says that Tathagata, in seeing what can be seen, does not conceive of the seen, does not conceive what can be seen, does not conceive an unseen, does not conceive one who sees. And this kind of fleshes it out a little more. The problem of the conceiving mind, which you are probably all painfully aware. Because the conceiving mind conceives me. Conceives me as an object. And the conceiving mind conceiving me as an object compares that object that it conceives of with what it could be, should be, used to be, will be, conceives of what other people see it as, should be, could be, would be, isn't. Mm. And in this suffering, confusion, who are you dealing with? Dealing with mirrors, mirror images and distortions including one's own. Hmm? How does it happen? As you notice, you, you know, you sit down, and you get like maybe, I don't know, just try and count it, if you like, a few seconds, we are just sitting there, and then it starts. Tidying yourself up. <laughs> Wriggling. Tidying yourself up. How you should be. How it's going to be. How you're going to get it right. How you're not going to get it right. What happened? What could happen? How to meditate? Which city? How to do it? Why you're not doing it? How to stop thinking? Um, why you think? What are you thinking about? What kind of thought are you having? Ay, ay, ay. It started. It took three seconds of a moment of peace and quiet, and then the whole shebang rolled into town, and here we go. <laughs> the ongoing narrative, the ongoing epic, the endless story of me. <laughs> Uh, the idea that we'll do an editorial on it, you know, prune it, punctuate it, tidy it up, 
snip off the, the woolly bits and get it right. So the editorial job gets going with the scalpel and the eraser. <laughs> what you can't cut off, you put some put some white out over it. You know, <laughs> blank it out. Doesn't exist. <laughs> Shouldn't exist, uh, and so on. Yeah. Conceives of oneself, conceives oneself, conceives of others, conceive me. You come into a group and there's that kind of, oh, you know, self consciousness arises. Mm. Feeling slightly awkward, nervy, not completely settled. Mm. and this is kind of gets built in so much so that this self-conceiving in all its uh, editorials editorial jobs and pruning and punctuating and uh, and lopping off bits and pieces has become so predominant that it, it, it dominates the other forms of intelligence so loud you can't hear your own body or you only hear your body through the aperture of self-consciousness feeling uncomfortable in your body mm. trying to make your body into a certain way sit up straight, be comfortable, calm down breathing out, get on with it meditate mm. or it does a job on your emotion state calm down get clear, get bright, be happy snap out of it <laughs> feeling unhappy snap out of it <laughs> 10 cents please um, yeah. so this kind of thing can go on or why am I unhappy I shouldn't be unhappy after all practice this practice that you know. the doctor comes into town you know, up in your head telling you how to make yourself feel better and, and you should get over it by now and so on. So this, these kinds of, um, in, in, you know, orders and, and subtle suggestions are coming from the thinking mind. And this gets very busy. And after a while it loses patience. It starts complaining. Um, you know, why don't you ever sit still? Why don't you ever? And then it starts complaining and blaming self, others and so forth. The conceived world comes in. Mm. the problem so often seems to be our thinking mind and you'd, you'd be, you could say yes it's true my thinking mind is definitely problematic I'd like to quiet my thinking mind down mm. and you've made an object out of your thinking mind you step back from that seeing your thinking mind as an object you'd like to make it another way so then you do, one does an editorial job on the thinking mind. And slice that, cut that, squash that, suppress that, stop it thinking. Same process goes on with withdraw, view from self-consciousness, take it all very personally, thinking mind is a nuisance, so shut it up. And we've done the same thing as we did to the body and the heart. Mm. And so this is certainly a way to drive yourself crazy. Um, probably for most of us something starts to snap at a certain point when you realise you can't just concentrate and you've got fed up with trying to concentrate and you can't stop thinking, you've got fed up with trying to stop thinking <laughs> and you start to get the idea maybe I could be a little bit nicer to myself. Uh, you know, so, mm. and then where's then this is this is the journey, an uncomfortable journey, realizing one's capacity to be nice to oneself is really rather limited, to a very limited range of of uh, phenomena, because mm. the heart has become rather numbed by all this barrage of pressure and indictment and criticism and pushed around 
come up with good feeling of one kind or another. Feel cheerful. Is be bright, be humorous, feel warm. Another command. Mm-hmm. So it gets uh, the heart is already pretty challenged and probably quite peeved by all this treatment. Mm-hmm. Body, well, forget it. You know, um, body again pretty numbed out by all kinds of pressure of one kind or another. Pressure of just zapping around duties and work. The pressure of the, the discomfort sitting in, in positions where you can you just go into your head, sitting in chairs where you don't have to be in a body, you just go into the the screen or the book or whatever. Uh, so you just leave dump the body there, throw some coffee into it and just do you get on with your work, you know. This kind of thing. So the body then pretty much stupefied like a dumb animal mm-hmm. you know the way they keep animals tethered in pens they can't even turn around in and we do pretty much the same with our own bodies mm-hmm. and so naturally you know you take all kinds of food and drink or s- drugs or something to just get some good stuff going in that not realizing the body could feel pretty good and bright and be, uh, you know, relaxed and easy and comfortable if you just treated it a bit more clearly. <laughs> and it could, its intelligence could wake up, come out of that shell-shocked state, that numbed-out state, that unloved state, if it was treated, responded to as a subject, primal sympathy. Bodies feel like this. Tending to bodily experience with a mind of sympathy, not expecting it to feel pleasant. True sympathy, you widen it to mean I can listen to the uncomfortable, or I can at least try a bit more. I can open my heart a little more with kindness, the uncomfortable, the unpleasant, the disagreeable. Perhaps I could open my mind, and that would be called compassion. The willingness to move towards the uncomfortable with a receiving attitude, receptive attitude. Mm. Bodies respond to that rather well. Mm. So waking this up to a degree, you know, and having that attitude the way we sit and walk and stand, how does a body walk? Not how am I going to make it walk like a little pet meditator? You know, hey boy, come on. <laughs> Up and down your path. <laughs> but how does a body want to walk? Or, you know, yeah, like, you know, I realise my body's pretty doggy. It likes walking doggy. It sort of likes to rumble around and that's how it feels best. It doesn't like mincing along like a marionette. It likes to be an animal body. It's nothing. You know, it's not barbaric, but it is definitely a body. This is what bodies are like. They're not that nice and tidy and, you know, straight lines. They're they're lumpy. So Lou, this is where we begin to really get like try directly knowing uh, the felt knowing, sympathetic. Tell me how it is. I don't know. Tell me how it is. My brain does not know. It cannot know what a body is. Body has to tell me. And this is feeling, urging, rhythmic, warm, pulsing, pleasure, pain, vitality, vibrancy, thing, experience, phenomenon. And it's not an entity, it's actually a constant stream, right, in itself. A constant stream of these felt experiences, sensate, 
energetic, um, agreeable, disagreeable, trembling, pulsing, soothing, softening, widening. Mm. Kinds of things are going on in there. I mean, oh, pajanati, thoroughly knowing, fully aware. Knowing that you know, sampajana, is, oh, now I'm tuning in. It's like this. Get it? Sampajana is starting to inform our thinking. This is actually how what a body is. It's not that thing that you see in the mirror. It's not that thing that you should be or are supposed to be, you haven't quite become yet. It's not what people call you, it's this. Sampajana, thoroughly getting it, knowing it. And then how does it walk? How does it sit? How does it breathe? By itself. Really encouraging the mind, the brain to get back. To step back. Mm. And recognizing there can be a knowing where thought is minimal and even if it cultivated thought can cease and there can still be knowing so this is called jhana samadhi and the you know it, it, again it's one of those things people say well there's no thinking in jhana therefore you're just in this kind of hypnagogic state until it stops you know like a like an acid trip or something you just go in there and come out the other end feeling clean or clear or happy which that's good but clearly well if you look in the suttas clearly these these great beings were able to navigate within this realm of samadhi to discern the different factors that were present when they were present when they were absent to subtly moderate degrees of pleasure you know, they were clearly on the ball with, in some way they were reading what was going on and adjusting to it and moderating it but they even without thinking and you know it can be the case that we've got so lost this understanding that we think that's impossible mm-hmm. but if you ask the tightrope walker how she or he walked the tightrope they have to think about everything every way they adjust the muscles you say no you'd be dead by then <laughs> you've got to be on the ball and and the body has to sense you know that's why they, they widen if you notice they always have a pole they're carrying a pole what's that got to do with walking on a thin line because if you're holding the pole your bodily intelligence widens to balance and the wider the more balanced, the more exquisitely refined the balance is. Hmm? Check it out. Don't walk a tightrope, but check out widening your bodily awareness. It may sound strange because you don't have antennae, but imagine you did. If you like, and what's it like? The balance becomes extremely exquisite and subtle and refined. And if you tighten up to make sure you're getting it right, you lose it. Mm. You tighten up to, to think about how you're doing it, you lose it. You can't do that. Mm. So, so if we, you know, I suggest that this sense of widening and sensitizing will give exquisite balance to the body intelligence and you can navigate through realms of consciousness where thought subsides or even ceases altogether of course this is the domain of these great beings the great arahants certainly had the skill of doing that and you recognize again from that society they didn't have there was a little bit of writing but only for things like you know, transact monetary transactions. The really important things were never written down, because that would be disrespectful. You write, you write truth on a piece of paper or 
piece of card or whatever they use. That's really gross. You have to come through a human body with all the richness and the speaking to you and, you know, the full emotional embodied qualities to really honour truth. The words, true words are spoken and heard and transmitted and they're gone. The sound is gone. It's so beautiful, isn't it? The sound is gone and the senses, the transmission is in the heart. We all carry that and we're capable of carrying it. Isn't that just so so beautiful, trusting? We don't have to, you know, we can just pass it on and it stays in our hearts. And that's the, uh, the meaning of it touched by it and this was been the norm recognizing the words are there just to trigger and awaken and just suggest to the full embodied intelligence which then begins to know this is how you walk. You got it? Right. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course every individual adds her or his take, you know, subjective touch to that. And that means it's constantly mod you know, it's constantly kept alive and it's constantly refreshed and revitalized. And that that was the transmission. And you can see in many cultures, well, actually less now. You know, the, the the lineage was always sung. You have the bards or the griots or the shamans or the you know tribe would gather and you sing. You sing the tribe, you sing the genealogy, you sing the stories, you pass it on, you recite it to your children, you sit around and sing it together and chant it together and you carry it as a people. That's what makes you a people because you're bonded by the fact you've spoken and heard each other and and chanted it together Mm. and it's held through the heart instead of being people who get bits of paper with laws written on them comes through the door (laughs) or comes through an email and who's that? who's it from? nobody who's it to? nobody (laughs) there's nobody there So, you know, this sense of taking some of these things in and realizing that this awakening, deep, full intelligence. Now, the emotional, well, I call it emotional heart intelligence. Emotional, perhaps, is too narrow a term for it. Heart intelligence, heart sensitivity, mm. the moderating of agreeable, disagreeable, the moderating of perceptions and impulses, this is, you know, this is not, this is abusive. Mm. This is not, doesn't feel right. This is uh, careless, doesn't feel right. We're moderating that through the heart, not through law and order, but through the heart. And encouraging ourselves to really know that, the hiriotapa, uh, a sense of conscience and concern. This is heart intelligence. It's not law and order. It's not zero tolerance. It's maximum tolerance. And returning again and again to, well, how does that feel to you? Subjectively. How does it feel? Waking up. Of course, the primary exercises for heart intelligence, as you're clearly aware, is these upper mana states, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. And just bearing in mind, these are, I don't, you know, clearly we can just focus on those as determined exercises, you know, bringing up images, people, creatures that we 
wish to send that to and this is just like the five finger exercise to you know get those that intelligence out of being numb and one can give you know heart is a giving creature its nature is giving its nature is embracing its nature is to widen and include in different ways that's that's its nature And then, then really cultivating those so this high intelligence becomes a constant resource for us. Mm. It's not something you, oh, we've done my half an hour of metta, now switch it off and do insight. No, this is a constant resource. You don't wake the heart up until they go to sleep again. You keep it awake. Uh, and you're noticing uh, uh, you know, the attending from a mind of goodwill rather than attending through self-consciousness, through trying to get it right, through feeling like one is a failure, through getting exasperated with oneself, through looking for the right system, through law and order, through trying to tidy yourself up. You know, tyranny of the tidy, call it. So is that that uh, attending from a mind of goodwill? The mind of goodwill, when the Buddha dis- discoursed on these qualities on one occasion, how how he felt, how he said it was more fully developed in the awakened state, he said, because for one who is awakening, this quality of metta culminates in the sphere of the beautiful. For one who cultivates the quality of compassion, it it culminates in the sphere of infinite non-measured space, measureless space. One who cultivates mudita culminates in the sphere, the domain, the field, of measureless consciousness. One who cultivates upeka culminates in the sphere, the domain, the field of nothing. And you're thinking, what? <laughs> this is because it hasn't been fully developed. So in Cultivating these uh, Brahma Vihara, then we have clearly we can have objects, beings that we send that to, recognizing that any being that's seen as an object is already really a bit of a construction. <laughs> you know? It's like having metta towards your dog, so you give him shampoo and tie a ribbon around his neck. Because that's, you know, you, s- <laughs> right? you don't give him a bone and let him run around in the yard. You give him a tie a ribbon around his neck and give him a shampoo. Or, yeah, but did you really know what a dog was? <laughs> Get the idea, but, uh, but you know, could you like... So the sphere of the beautiful is we see the beautiful. I see your beauty. I respect it as you are. You have a different kind of beauty. Your beauty intrigues me. Uh, Everyone has their own beauty. I see that. I'm aware of that. I'm touched by that. I'm delighted by it. I'm, I'm warmed by it. The curious forms that beauty takes. But because it, one sees it with a mind of goodwill. Mm. You know how how beauty itself. Even to use the word, you feel slightly uncomfortable because we always start to think of fashion models or cosmetics or fantastic rip guys or rip muscles or whatever. You know, Armani suits or something like that. You think, yuck. 
because that's what's happened to that. <laughs> you know, we typified beauty and limited it, and r- to this point, when actually even the you know the models themselves are nervous wrecks, and then the photographs are touched up, so there's nobody there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's amazing what, what our stupidity can do by conceiving we conceive that beauty is this conceived it and then we've frozen it in time right locked it in of course you know that even though the model looked she, she only looked like that for about three seconds at the best before she breathed out or something <laughs> <laughs> or her hair moved or something you know and then of course she aged but and then they touched her up as well so you know <laughs> so Ron's seen this kind of construction frozen objective beauty aware that the subjective mystery evolving in its irreplaceable Everything is uniquely itself, expressing itself from moment to moment. I think this is beautiful. Yeah. You never get to the end of it. It's just, yeah. And you just want to, uh, you want to allow it to to express itself fully. Mm. This is the sphere of the beautiful. Well, my take on it. It's what it comes through this, through this being. That's how it it sounds or feels. The sphere of the of the when you say infinite space, we start to perhaps get into you know astronomy, <laughs> universe, and so forth. But actually, when we contemplate the space element, that which does not resist has no resistance in it, right? space, that which allows things to enter, no resistance. And you see where does, what happens when uncomfortable feeling arises? Resistance. (laughs) What happens when the sorrowful arises? Resistance. Make it go away, change into something else. Uh, Disagreeable, stop it, change it. Make it something, no, space gets very tight. And the tighter it gets, the more painful it gets. This is something you begin to learn. Physical pleasure, physical pain are the way it is. Yeah, Clearly you don't like them, you don't go out of your way to have them, but they can happen to you. Mental pain you have some choice over. And the story, the simple story is the more you resist it, the more painful it's going to get. The more you fight against it, the more painful it's going to get. The more you want it to go away, the bigger it's going to get. And you can fight, and it will still be there, and it will always beat you. (laughs) So the sense of, where's the way out? This is pragmatic. You may think it's noble, but it's just sheer pragmatic. I don't want to suffer. Any, any more than I have to. <laughs> so let me be one who does not resist the uncomfortable, the disagreeable, does not block it, but actually, and what's that quality? We call it compassion. Non-blaming, the non-revenge, the non-judgment, the non-wounding, self and others. Seeing the unpleasant, the disagreeable, with a mind that's spacious, and this being you know, is acting in accordance with karma, or you know, who knows? But at first response is to not get that slam, and particularly, of course, towards number one, this one, which. If most one's direct, palpable field of concern, do I have 
can I meet my own niggardliness, grumpiness, festering moodiness, you know, disobedient rebelliousness, cantankerousness, you know, the whole whack, a whole lot of it, <laughs> with a mind of you know, compassion, you know, this is not agreeable, this is not beautiful, but there is space. This is what, this is where we begin. And just see the results. The, the resistance ceases, the, resi- the complaining ceases, heart melts. Oh, how could I have been so callous, so judgmental? Melts. And so Tathagata has cultivated that to the measureless degree. Even when attacked, does not uh, fight back, sends forth goodwill. This is, you know, and again we can think this is very noble, it actually is, means it's the, it's the safest bet. <laughs> Because you stay steady, your heart is staying steady and secure despite that. And you realize the bottom line is that's all you can, that's all you finally have is your own heart. (laughs) The rest of it you only borrow for a while. Other people you don't have say over them. They may be this way or that way, but that isn't something you can really stipulate how they behave but you can have some say over this. Yeah. And you get prioritized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So otherwise you can, one stews in one's own resentment or bitterness or failure or guilt. Mm-hmm. Heart of mudita, infinite consciousness instead of self-consciousness. This is really about the agreeable. How the agreeable can be seen as mine or hers. How come she's got the agreeable and I don't have the agreeable? Oh, it's a bad deal if you ask me. I should have just as much of the agreeable as she has. Exactly the same amount as she has. I don't see why she should have more of the agreeable than me. I've worked harder than she has. She's got an easy ride. How come? I didn't get my share. <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, you know, getting jealous and petty over the agreeable means one's still moored in me and you. you know, self-consciousness. Mm. So the mudita is the ability to experience, oh, this is, this is the, the joyful is occurring. You know, the good fortune is occurring. I can resonate with that. So instead of constellating around who we're constellating around what arises realizing actually that's probably more accurate because who is guesswork you may think oh she's getting a good deal and then you ask her and she probably doesn't feel she's getting a good deal (laughs) you know she has all kinds of problems and difficulties and troubles, even though she got an extra donut or some reward or another. Yeah. So who is guesswork? But when we sense, yeah, uh, this is the I see the quality of of uh, virtue in this being. Uh, I rejoice. Mm. Or they are receiving, they are receiving good fortune. I rejoice because then my heart is lifted instead of being moored in this separative self-consciousness. We're attuned to the sign of the gladdening, wherever that is. Heart can lift. No thing means uh, equanimity, you, you realize everything is in flow, in fluid, so you can't really cut
cut things out into this is this and that's that. It becomes this is everything is something changing to something else. Moods, beings, bodies, nature, everything is changing to something else. Everything is flowing to something. There's no such thing as a thing. Everything is flow. And when we begin to cultivate that towards this subject, we realize the subject is actually not an entity at all. The subject is a, a realm of direct experience. It's not an entity. It's a realm of direct experience. So the subjective is not an ego maniac. It's the realm of direct experience. And direct experience is pleasure, pain, success, failure, joy, sorrow, change, mutability, everything's fluxing, flexing to that. And if you don't fixate on one bit of it, we don't get greedy, we don't get possessive, we don't get domineering, we don't get intoxicated, we don't get stuck. Locking. And we lock, we hold on, and then, oh, it's changing. How long is it going to go on for? Uh, can I get back to where I was last year? <laughs> this kind of thing happens. Mm. High intelligence, when it's opened into this, mm. is able to sensitize to the flow. And it's endowed with the qualities of compassion, appreciation, goodwill. Steadied in the body, it's carefully held in the body, it's secure. And I emphasize the uh, bodily domain because, again, we may th- think these heart things are very, very beautiful, inspiring, but how do I do that? Um, and I, th- I say you should come into your own body. To to act as the support, the foundation for that and also begin, you begin to understand in contemplating somatic intelligence the need for those not just as nice accessories but the fundamental need for those qualities because this, once you come into embodiment you come into the sense of having a body clearly and this means you now have a you your subjectivity has a location right when it's a location it means it is seen it is touched it is regarded and that's risky once we got born into this we came into a location and on a fundamental level there's an interest in well may I feel safe harmonious may the location I'm in be comfortable that's natural enough isn't it but what is it the location is not that birth is dukkha the location is beset with cold and heat and disagreeable contact, mm, hunger. The location is, is in a realm of other beings who see you as an object. It's risky. And there were probably try to make you into something that they think is good and if they're not very sensitive or careful there you are shampooed with a ribbon round your neck (laughs) (laughs) if I'm a dog no you're not (laughs) and so on and that's even if they're well-intentioned, <laughs> let alone if they are beset with all kinds of psychological problems and their own grievances and you know, agendas and 
and projections, which of course they are. So this location is pretty challenging. And you know, particularly in, the, in a realm where we don't have the community gathering and singing to each other uh, and sharing. Uh, you know, we don't have that. We have abstracted dystopia. We connect through the internet. <laughs> it's, you know, not putting it down, but that's all. It's a pretty bleak world. Mm. So this this body then receives that signal, those signals. It becomes, it, it senses, it's not stupid, it senses. If I'm entirely safe here, comfortable here, what does that do when that sense runs into the heart? Well, do something to make yourself more agreeable. You know, look good, say good, do good, do a lot of good, perform, get it right, therefore, then you'll be okay. That's where it starts. And the guilt of not having, because you still don't get that safety. It doesn't come that way. It doesn't come through that. It doesn't come through any kind of performance. It doesn't come through becoming something that you think other people will agree with. It doesn't come that way. Hmm? So you never feel you quite got it. If you're guilty, anxious, because you try very hard and you still don't feel entirely safe and comfortable. You know, all kinds of gestures to placate, be polite, and you still don't feel it. Really, really. There's something wrong with you. You start to judge yourself. Something wrong with you. Snap out of it. <laughs> Did work harder. Something wrong with you. So it goes. What does it take? It takes a body. Its own energy, presence, space. And then we begin to sense at a very fundamental level I am the welcomed. Mm. Therefore my heart is open, free from fear, regret, comparison. Heart is open, metta is natural. Mm. Natural result. So this is suggesting because there's something we can really start to. There is a causal process here. Body intelligence has to come first because that's what you were born with. Before you could say a word, that's what you were born with. When you're in the womb. You, 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 it was developing. That's your first language. You've got to get that one right before you don't start talking for two or three years, you know. You've got to get that one right. That's what you came in with. Cultivate that. Heart will naturally open. Why should it not open? Hmm? With those resources, with those resources, you know, is there, is there a problem you could not come to terms with? Is there a feeling you could not come to terms with? Surely not. With this you are surely endowed, enriched, ready. You know things directly as they are. You're not lost in conceiving of yourself, 
as a should be, a could be, a was, or anything. Mm. Tides of conceiving do not sweep over. Mm. One is safe. Anyone? Um,